electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. At a live conversation with Jay Powell and Princeton University, a lot of headlines crossing on it. I know it seemed wonky at times, but trust me, the comments and the headlines that Chair Jay Powell made were market moving, especially we saw stocks move at the very beginning. Here are some of the key headlines right now. We are seeing, by the way, stocks near record highs. They did dip a bit. He was talking about inflation, both welcome and unwelcome as well. That moved markets down a bit. They have powered back up. The Dow is up 108 points right now. We are seeing the 10-year yield. Remember, any comments on fiscal policy, monetary policy, inflation, and, of course, interest rates could move treasuries. The benchmark 10-year at 1.1%, by the way, up 40% in a couple of months on that yield. Something to watch. The dollar index down slightly right now. It had been up for a couple of days, all as we await President-elect Joe Biden's stimulus plan rollout tonight at 7.15 Eastern time. That could be a market mover as well. All right, let's just bring right in a guest to sort of sum up all of what we just heard and get some ideas going forward. And for that, who better than Jim Paulson, chief investment strategist at the Luthold Group? No doubt, Jim, you were honed in on that commentary from Jay Powell. Was there anything that he said or implied that would make you change your investing strategy or best ideas right now? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think um, he, he, as policy officials have been doing for a while, Brian says they're going to they're gonna pull out every stop and keep the gas, the gas pedal to the floor here as far as policy Jews, which uh, it's hard to get really negative on, on stocks or risk assets when you get that message. The one thing, though, I did, I did, you know, one of his big focuses, he said, was on returning to a strong job market. And I just wrote a piece this morning, I'd like to point out that um, if I look at the broadest unemployment rate measure, the U6 measure, we're at 11.7% today. And in five of the last six recessions going back to 1980, we have blown uh, above that, infl- uh, that unemployment rate and then brought it back down during the expansion. And in, in the last, uh, in three of them, we were at the same unemployment rate in, in 1986, uh, the same unemployment rate in 1993, same unemployment rate in 2014. But our approach to it is radically different today. Oh, back in those other three times, we had an average 10-year yield of 5.2%. Today, it's a little over one. Back in those three previous episodes, we had money supply that averaged 5.6% year on year. Today, it's 26% year on year. Back then, we had average deficit to GDP ratios of 3.6%. And today, it's greater than 15%. It's just massive, and to me, what I what I also bothers me is it sounds to me a little like the 1960s when we thought we had fixed the business cycle and there was no concerns and and uh, no real long-term fallout could uh, could get us where we have to be most concerned about today and now. I think policy officials need to think a little bit about the latent impact of of overuse and abuse of economic policies today. What impact that might have a couple years down the road? 
Well, I, I don't know how you get out of it at this point. I mean, you, and with all due respect to the Fed, let's not forget, Jim, there are six unelected private citizens who now control a balance sheet that is nearly yeah. double the size of the annual budget of the entire United States of America. <laughs> I say that with respect. I'm rooting for them because they cannot get it wrong. There's too much out there. So I called it earlier, Jim, the honey badger market, because you know what? It doesn't <laughs> care. I'll just put it that way. Rising COVID, rising unemployment. We've got rising rates, of course. We've got an impeachment. We've got all this stuff coming on. And yet the Fed is the other thing over here, which seems to be a harder scale balance. Is the Fed going to outweigh everything else? Well, I think it's both uh, fiscal juice, which is just immense. I mean, a $2 trillion package last year. We just had a $900 billion that's going to hit in the first quarter. And while we're promising tonight, probably another tr trillions dollar package. You know, you got to remember, Brian, we, we grew 33% in real GDP in the third quarter. And right now, the Atlanta Fed GDP now estimate for the fourth quarter we just ended is of almost 9%. And when you give me $900 billion of additional fiscal stimulus hitting disposable personal income in this quarter, I, I got to believe we're going to have another big quarter this quarter. So I, I do think at some point that the policy yeah. officials maybe need to step back and take a breath and try not, you know, solve today's problems, but don't create a situation where they create even worse problems yeah. a couple of years from now, because it sure seems like they're headed down that well, road. We'll find out. Listen, a, a, there's a lot of people that need that stimulus, absolutely. But a Maru Blue survey, yep. Jim, also showed that 70% of those surveyed said they're either going to save it or use it to pay off credit card debt. That would not give the economy maybe that <laughs> bump that it needs. Jim, we'll get you back on soon to talk about why you were supposed to be on about small caps and everything else. Jim Paulson with the Luthold Group. Thank <laughs> Thanks, you very Brian. much. All right. Take care, buddy. All right. Well, outside of stocks, the bit sanity continues. Bitcoin surging again today after tanking a few days ago after surging a few days before that. Multi-thousand dollar moves per day are now commonplace in the cryptos. Is this a sign of growing risk or maybe growing rewards and acceptance? The pain we've got to get through. Joining us now to talk about it, Jean-Marie Monetti, CoinShares CEO. CoinShares, by the way, seeing record inflows in its Bitcoin-related products, ETPs and other services in early year. Uh, Jean-Marie, welcome to the program. Uh, I know you gave an update a few weeks ago. How much in assets are you adding every week? Can you tell us? Like CoinShare was hit a record high, Brian. Nice, nice to be here. Uh, to answer your question very directly, CoinShare hit an all-time high uh, record of AUM of $3.9 billion uh, in the first few weeks um, of January. Okay, so we're seeing a huge amount of interest. Is that mostly Jean-Marie? from the institutional side or from the retail investor side or fairly evenly split? Well, it's a very interesting question because I've been trading cryptocurrency since 2013 um, in various incarnations through a first hedge fund regulated my partner, Danny Masters, and then through CoinShares, through our ETPs program. And through this journey, we have seen the demand completely shifting from a very retail-driven demand, mainly trading in Asia, to something moving much more to the US and to Europe and progressively graduating towards what could be qualified as, um, I would say, institutional demand. There is a lot of data point out there. You know, you get uh, yeah. Skybridge breaking the internet on the first conference call with investors. You get the fixed income CIO of BlackRock 
making a very strong point about uh, Bitcoin allocation for the new generation, how it will replace gold. Uh, even if Jeff Curry this morning from Goldman was doing a bit of a different approach, uh, the, the thematic is still very strong. And, and then you get City giving very strong, like 300 grand uh, kind of price valuation on Bitcoin. And, and finally, you get very conservative house like Ruffer in the UK also allocating to Bitcoin. So the demand is very shifting and starting to permeate into very yeah. traditional investor. And that's kind of the headline. But I but think, think Jean-Marie, more- Jean-Marie, uh, sorry. So let me jump in. Je désolé. I apologize for the interruption. But ah. let me, because I, I want to get this in. If the Dow fell 4,000 points a day and then rose 4,000 points the next day for a number of days, people would probably get spooked and say, what's going on with stocks? Bitcoin has been doing that and nobody seems to care. I know the idea of Bitcoin, by the way, is that it's independent and uncontrollable. But I do wonder with 18 and a half million coins or so mined, only 21 million ever and big institutions stepping in. Are you worried that it can be sort of semi-artificially bullied around by big hedge funds? I don't think it's bullied around, but we're going to run out. We have, you know, if you just take a single matrix, we have 21 million coins fully deleted. A lot of a lot of them have been lost already. And just in the US uh, and North America, you have 21 million millionaires. So there is not enough one for each of you. So you know, at uh, at uh, at a global scale, uh, we have a, a bit of an offer and demand imbalance here, which is manifesting by uh, you know this demand we can see in the market. You know, there is. Uh, time-waiting algorithm buying every single dip at the moment in the market. In the past, when the market was tanking, it was staying there for a while because there was no more demand. Now there is like people waiting for this move to just like enter the market and and start allocating. Uh, you know, and there's so much correlation in the price moves, Jean-Marie, and it's not just between you know maybe I'll call it the big four or five, the ones you guys deal in. You've got Bitcoin, Ethereum. Litecoin, XRP, others, those are really the big four or five, but there's there's 40 or 50 cryptos that get traded and get a lot of attention on even some of the smaller exchanges. They tend to move together, even though they are, A, very different program languages in some cases, very different purposes. Some of them are like Bitcoin being turned into a currency, while others like Ethereum, a currency on the blockchain platform for Ether. Uh, is there one that you personally favor over the others or that your clients seem to favor over the others? Or is it really just all about Bitcoin? Look, it's, uh, I think CoinShare a couple of years ago did a very good piece about uh, the portfolio allocation uh, in the digital asset sphere and like what kind of value added you get in diversification. Uh, the truth in the matter is like there is a strong concentration in liquidity in the top pairs that you were mentioning. And our client will, you know, the institu- you know, and many institutions will also favor liquidity in the allocation decision. So Bitcoin, Ethereum will always win in terms of size and trade ticket versus uh, a Ripple or something uh, much smaller. Do you see any correlation of inflows, Jean-Marie, to your funds when Bitcoin hits certain milestones? I know that people make fun of the media and probably rightfully so, Jean-Marie. You know, Bitcoin 30,000, Bitcoin 40,000. But because the number doesn't mean anything more than Bitcoin 39,999, it's just a nice headline. But when you see those headlines, does that accelerate the, inflows? The, the number doesn't mean anything in itself. It's, it's a relative value and a different number means different thing to different people. I was still believing I would be able to bring my party hat for 40,000 tonight, but we're not there yet. Uh, but 
you know, more importantly than the number itself, it's the metrics around uh, the network, uh, which are very interesting. If you look at, you know, the spot trading volume, you know, the 2017 market rally was very much a derivative-driven uh, rally through big, you know, Asian mainly uh, distributed platform. And like this 2020-2021 movement is very much focused around um, how to get, you know, more, um, I would mm -hmm. say physical coin for sake of a better word in your in your wallet, and you can see uh, BTC cash market uh, volume multiplied by at least seven since August. Uh, and if you look at what the institutional who want to put their hands on Bitcoin will look at, so you know we, you get the newsletter from uh, from uh, Paul Tudor Jones in August, you get some declaration from uh, Standard yeah. and Miller. All this allocation were certain certainly happening through so the CME, and that's very important for Terrace because I was part of the uh, in, in um, I was the committee to launch a first uh, future with the CME, um, and this product has keep growing year on year. Yeah. And like from December twenty twenty, from December twenty nineteen to December twenty twenty, we just had a two x on the volume. But more important and more interesting is like what is happening to the large uh, inter open interest holder on this market. And in December we hit an all time high of one hundred and ten. Yeah. And this number is interesting if you put it in perspective with gold or like uh, and crude oil, whether we get three fifty. Jean Marie, Jean Marie, I've got, I've got, I apologize again. I've got to jump in. The J pal at the top sort of tighten the entire show. Fascinating conversation, though. Certainly one that we will continue to have. Jean Marie Monetti, CoinShares, best to you, Jean Marie. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. By the way, Guggenheim also allocating or saying it could allocate up to ten percent of its money into cryptos. And Scott Miner will be here in a few minutes to talk more about that. And on Power Lunch, we'll have even more on the crypto chat. The CEO of Grayscale, whose huge Bitcoin bet has paid off, will join to discuss that and crypto's next move. That's coming up at 2 p.m. All right. Well, the conventional wisdom behind retirement is put your money away, never think about it, never touch it. Just add more to it. However, a recent survey from personal finance magazine Kiplinger and wealth management from Personal Capital found Many people are ignoring that advice or have to ignore it. In fact, nearly 60% of Americans withdrew or borrowed some of their money from their retirement accounts during the pandemic, in part because the pandemic changed the rules to allow penalty-free withdrawals, many using the money for basic expenses, others maybe using it for tuition, home improvements, or even buying boats. Joining us now is Jay Shaw, president of Personal Capital. Uh, Jay, welcome. I want to ask you this, and I mean this sincerely. I actually know somebody who pulled money out of their 401k People are going to say it's stupid, but it was penalty free and bought Bitcoin with it. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it's happening. What's the do we have any idea of the breakdown of retirement people pulling money out? What exactly that money is going for? Well, uh, you, you stated the headline very loud and clear, and it's, uh, you know, from the joint research that personal capital conducted with with Kiplingers and six out of 10 people are withdrawing money from these accounts. And uh, you, I think you also mentioned that the primary amount, primary month, primarily that money is going into ordinary living expenses, about 61% of it. Um, about 40% of it is going into medical expenses. Um, but there's other areas where it's going to. It's going into home improvement. It's going into auto repairs. Um, we didn't see much in our response in terms of it going into Bitcoin. But bear in mind, these are, these are people's retirement assets, the nest egg that they built up. Many of these respondents to the survey have been saving money for decades to build up this nest egg. And quite frankly, the, the results that we see from the survey are astounding. 
But Jay, again, when I, when I look at the, the average 401k balance is $8,000. And, and the numbers that you guys have is the average withdrawal is 75,000. So these are not, the pandemic has mostly cost sort of service workers their jobs. They tend to not have much savings because they haven't made a lot of money. So who are these people? They're clearly wealthy, educated people that are pulling money out of their accounts. I, th I think that's right. When we look at the U.S. marketplace of investors, clearly the you know the front lines are, are they're they're incurring a lot of pain. The specific respondents to this survey, they're people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, even people into their mid 70s. So they're people that are very far along in their in their financial career, so to speak. Um, they've got about uh, over $100,000 in median income. They saved up over $300,000 in their nest egg. So we're we're talking about a segment of the population, but as you say. Um, greater than a third of them have pulled money out of their retirement accounts in excess of $75,000. So they saved up this money over decades. That math is about 25% of their portfolio that they're drawing down, their retirement portfolio that they're drawing down. Mm. Going into housing, a lot of homes being built and improved on around here, Jay. I mean, I got to imagine the money's coming from somewhere. And listen, the CARES Act saying you can take it out without a penalty, it, it obviously spurred people to act. It, it sure did. I mean, it, it gave people a $100,000 exemption to either draw down their retirement account or take a loan against it. Um, and as, as we said, the, the, you know, the, the data suggests from the survey that primarily it's for living expenses and also medical expenses. Some people really need the money. But that's the biggest question for us in the survey, too, is do the people really need the money? Are they buying homes? Are they improving homes? You know, the, the reality of the situation is the majority of the American in investors, th these households, they do not have a financial plan. They don't know their net worth. They don't know how much they're spending versus how much they're saving. And that's a, that's a concern. They're, they're drawing down on this nest egg. Um, and the, the effect of this is yeah. that over a third of them believe that they're going to have to work longer as a result of that decision. Probably will. And 81,000 taking loans, although I guess the only good thing is the loan, you technically pay yourself back. Jay Shaw, Personal Capital, we appreciate your time on the program. Retirement, always an important topic. Jeff, thank you very much. Thanks, Ryan. All right, let's get more important topics. Sue Herrera is here now with a CNBC News update. Sue. I am indeed. Hi, Brian. Good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everybody. A new government report says the Justice Department failed to prepare properly before implementing its zero-tolerance border policy in 2018. The report says the policy caused lasting emotional damage to thousands of children who were taken away from their parents. In Texas, Blue Origin has successfully launched and landed its rocket meant for space tourism. While there were no passengers on this test flight of the new Shepard, it did feature an upgraded crew capsule and rocket booster. NBC Universal, the parent company of CNBC, is launching a journalist development program with universities and colleges serving people of color called NBCU Academy. Six and a half million dollars will be invested in the initiative, including three and a half million dollars in scholarships over the next two years. And in France, a record price for that piece of art. That is a comic book art. This uh, painting for the cover of a Tintin comic book sold for $3.1 million. It spent years folded and hidden in a drawer before being offered at auction. Love Tintin. You're up to date, Brian. Back to you. I believe that is the Blue Lotus. If it I, is. If my, if my... It is indeed. And because it was so expensive to uh, produce... It actually never went on commercial display because they didn't think that they could actually charge enough to compensate the artist. So now you're up to date. 
fast, fascinating piece of Belgian history somehow ending up in France. It always does, doesn't it? Yep. Sue Herrera, thank you very much. You got it, Brian. All right, ahead. Will 2021 be the year of rising rates and maybe rising inflation? If so, what could that mean for stocks? And is Bitcoin really going to 400,000? We're going to ask all that of Google and I Partners, Global CIO Scott Miner. And look up in the sky. It's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's your paper towels being delivered to your house. A lot more ahead on the exchange. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. A new Fang King taking your chips off the table with a given stock, a rent recovery and drone delivery. It is time now for Rapid Fire. Joining us on the hot seats today, we got Robert Frank, Michael Santoli, and yes, Contessa Brewer with a big Dave Portnoy Penn National story. We'll get to that, Contessa, but first, Bank of America naming Google Alphabet its top Fang stock pick for this year. It replaces Netflix. B of A says Alphabet has better margins and stands to benefit from the internet themes it expects that, including a boost from e-commerce and advertising converging, expansion of 5G, cloud computing, travel, blah, blah, blah. Alphabet is down slightly today, but up more than 20% the past year. Mike, your take on the call. Well, it's a relative value call. So Google, uh, the stock has done not much of anything for several months. It's actually not at much of a premium, if at all a premium, to the overall market. That's a rare thing uh, in the nearly 20 years that Google has been a public company. So I really feel like it's got a little bit of cyclical boost coming because of advertising, travel-related stuff, uh, relative to a Netflix, which probably has front-loaded its gains. I don't think it's out of consensus, but it's an interesting call on a kind of quality name that's not as expensive as it usually is. Yeah, big travel play, too. A lot of people searching yeah. for hotels and restaurants. That's going to come back. All right, next up, Loop Ca Contessa, get ready. Loop Capital says that Penn National Gaming, with your buddy Portnoy, can't keep up with its hot streak, downgrading it to a sell, saying the run lately has been unwarranted, given that the Barstool app is only available in one state, and that is Pennsylvania here. It's been a red-hot stock. Contessa, the CFO, by the way, leaving after... Less than a year, that's a red flag, too. According to this analyst. But on the same day, I want to point out that Barry Jonas with Truist Securities, who's been a gaming analyst for a long, long time, also raised the price target on Penn from $85 to $120. Are the valuations stretched? Of course they are. Penn is up 300% uh, over 12 months. Is that a reason for a downgrade? Well, if you look at what's happening here, Penn is getting ready to launch potentially in Michigan, which is getting ready to embrace online gaming, you're seeing explosive growth. We had a research analysis out today by, um, by a payments company named Paysafe. They said that COVID has convinced more than 60% of sports bettors that it's safe to go online. So coronavirus may have actually been a boon for sports gambling uh, when, when it comes to this. And not only that, if you're looking at 83% who plan to start sports betting this year, they haven't done so before. They say they have no affinity for a particular brand. What makes a difference 
difference to them is how easily you can cash in and out, what the brand itself is like, um, whether there's promotions yeah. offered. These are places where Penn might capitalize. Well, they offer a lot of promotions, Contessa. You can go from FanDuel and DraftKings, Golden Nugget, all these things. I know a lot of people that just kind of move around because if they don't trade or bet for a while, they get that promotional thing in the email, you know, free 20 bucks on a $100 bet. We shall see. All right. By the way, Contessa, I know you are a person of great taste because we selected the same background for our shots. Genius. All right. I then this. see that. There are some... <laughs> that's... I'm watching. All right, some signs of life for the New York City rental market, Robert Frank. New data shows apartment rentals in Manhattan nearly doubled in December. That's right, new leases soaring 94% compared to 2019, the largest gain in nearly a decade. Robert, has the escape from New York, Kurt Russell theme, has that been overplayed? <laughs> I don't know if it's been overplayed. And look, th this is a case where the data is now less horrible. That doesn't mean it's a rebound or we're on a sudden recovery. This is going to be a very long recovery for New York City. But it is good news in December. We had number of new leases nearly doubling. We had uh, strong gains driven by a 17% decline in rental rates. So when rents come down 17%, you're going to get a lot of people looking for bargains. Now, on the other side of the balance sheet and weighing on all this is the fact that we still have 14,000 empty apartments in New York. And if you add in all the stuff that's been held back in the market, the shadow inventory, it's probably more like 20,000 apartments still unrented and unlisted in New York. Mm. So we've got a long way to go. Maybe the first quarter could be a good sign. And by the way, this is all being driven on the top end of the market. On the sales side and the rental side, it's all being driven by, by the wealthy and the high earners because they've been less affected by this pandemic. If anything, maybe Michael Santoli, they've saved money. Meantime, I saw a journal article. There's a billion dollars in unpaid rent in Manhattan. A lot of 25-year-olds probably saying, you know what? My landlord's been a jerk for three years. I'm out of here, and I'm going to stiff him on the rent. There's no doubt about that. Although also on the commercial side, tremendous amount of unpaid rent. I happen to be a one-person channel check here uh, in the market, potentially for a new Manhattan rental, and the supply is amazing. We were just looking a few years ago, and the same places down 20%, no fees, all the rest of it. So the market can come back, but let's maybe wait until April for my own self-interest. Yeah, and you realize now you're going to get like 600 calls <laughs> from, from eager realtors, but maybe that's what you're looking for. Michael Santoli, no always with a plan. I'm All right. okay with that, yeah. Always with a plan. I'm in the market looking for a discount. <laughs> All right, finally, that almost sounded like a song. L.A. officials announcing the creation of an urban air mobility partnership as a way to get folks there used to seeing drones in the sky. Comes after... The FAA loosened restrictions on flying drones in high population areas and at night. Means home deliveries from the sky, things like food, drugs, packages, toilet paper. No longer just a far off fantasy. Some big players ready to cash in like Amazon, Walmart, UPS. Contessa Brewer, I believe you're up there in the country. Here's my problem with the drones. And by the way, a lot of this is being done at my alma mater, Virginia Tech, go Hokies. They're loud, they're loud, dogs bark. This is not a perfect solution. It's a leaf blower in the sky. I, I mean, your dog barks at a drone. What does your dog do about the Amazon delivery guy coming to your door? It seems to me like a drone Loves that drops because he and takes treats. off is a lot. Well, 
uh, all right, you've got a very special guy there. I think that this is the wave of the future, and I think it's not just for drone delivery, but other, you know, uh, we could see other applications here as well. The real question, as always, is safety on the ground. How do you make sure that, you know, you don't have drones just falling out of the sky on top of people's heads or on the sidewalk? I'm sure that's going to be figured out. And, and two, um, what ways do we see this develop in a, in a way that makes real financial sense for the companies involved? Because this is an expensive proposition to get off the ground. But I'm bummed. I got, I got it. I loved it. And by the way, Robert Frank, there's a disco remake here. It's not raining men. According to Contessa Brewer, it's raining drones. Will this work in Manhattan? Uh, yeah, this is great. Look, in Manhattan, we already have cranes and scaffolding falling on our head. So having a drone would be like a, a pleasant change. And also, I don't know, Brian, if you've been in New York City any time in the past six months, but these giant pop-up packaging centers where they just have hundreds of packages on the street, Amazon guy is about to deliver them. I mean, we've got to get rid of it. Drones are a great solution, and there's no traffic in the sky in Manhattan, so bring it on. I, I, unfortunately, I was a few weeks ago. I had the final inside meal that weekend. They shut everything down, by the way, at La Bernadette. All right, uh, Robert Frank, Contessa Brewer, Michael Santoli. Contessa Brewer takes that round. We'll see you next time on Rapid Fire. All right, still ahead, Guggenheim, Scott Miner, tweeting earlier this week that Bitcoin's rise in the near term may be unsustainable and it was vulnerable for a setback. Well, it did fall and now is repop. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the Fed headlines from Jay Powell and much more. Scott Miner, next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Well, Bitcoin has been on a tear, surging about 250% in the past three months. But as investors pile in, Wall Street veteran Scott Minard issued a warning recently. In a recent tweet, Minard said, quote, Bitcoin's parabolic rise is unsustainable in the near term, vulnerable to a setback. The technical upside of 35,000 has been exceeded. Maybe time to take some money off the table. Although he has also said down the road in years, Bitcoin could be worth 400,000. Joining us now with more on all of this is our friend Scott Miner, Global Chief Investment Officer and Chairman of Investments at Guggenheim Partners. And first off, as a part owner of the Dodgers, I want to. Uh, I know you're good friends with with Tommy Lasorda, so my sympathies there, Scott. Uh, they've got a new coach in heaven. So welcome to the program, Scott. Um, your Bitcoin four hundred thousand comment got a lot of attention. Were you was that tongue in cheek or do you mean it? No, no, I mean it. Uh, it was really interesting. It was a passing comment uh, uh, in an interview. And I'd be honest with you, Brian, I could have said the United States government is bankrupt and the Federal Reserve is insolvent and Bitcoin's going to 400000 someday, and they would have just talked about Bitcoin, uh, which, which tells you something. I mean, it, it's, it's telling you that it's getting a, it's turning into a bit of a frenzy. Uh, you can see um, you know, a, a number of um, uh, trading platforms are saying that they're going to start limiting uh, orders to buy Bitcoin because they can't keep up with uh, the retail demand. I mean, these are all signs of a frothy market. And, uh, uh, you know, markets like this are prone to harsh setbacks, but it doesn't, you know, over the long run, uh, undermine the bull case. And the bull case is 
As we heard earlier, 21 million will only ever be mined, 18 and a half about that outstanding. You have firms like Guggenheim, which has said in the future, you may be able to allocate a certain percentage to the cryptos, not just Bitcoin. If you got a lot of demand and very little supply, it's like Tesla, if Tesla had 5 million shares outstanding instead of a billion, Tesla stock would probably be a, a million dollar equity. Well, yeah, and it's, it's interesting. You're right. And I think decimalization is going to be ultimately uh, the solution to, you know, the, uh, the, to the total valuation. It's just like splitting your stock. Uh, you know, Bitcoin it can be decimalized down to uh, eight places. So, you know, we quote, uh, you, know, um, you know, stocks, for instance, in dollars and cents. And so, you know, it, it wouldn't be uncommon to decimalize this to to get into more tradable sizes and pieces and, and a, a price that doesn't look as crazy as $400,000 would. Um, you know, Brian, one of the big yeah, questions... Yeah, I mean, just, just like just the halving or just like the stock splits or people, it's the same stock just worth half, but it's cheaper so people can, can buy in. Let's move on, Scott. We had Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell on in sort of a live one-on-one -on -one interview with Princeton University, hitting on a lot of topics. We focus a lot on inflation, I certainly have, but unemployment, it sounds like, may be more important to them. Do you believe the Federal Reserve will either keep rates low and or keep their bond buying program going until employment is maximized? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I think uh, uh, they're going to face a hard time tapering as uh, We've seen over the last week uh, as there have been more discussions about tapering from uh, members of the Fed. Uh, and, of course, over the last couple of days, they've sort of started to walk it back. Uh, what's going on in the bond market uh, and the backup we've had is not something they want to see. And uh, so they want to, uh, you know, I think calm the markets down to realize that they're not going to taper soon. But your, your question, Brian, really is, about, you know, what is the sequencing of taper versus unemployment uh, versus raising rates? And I think that they've learned uh, from their experience of raising rates while reducing uh, the size of the Fed balance sheet was not a very successful operation in 2018. So the question now is, what is the threshold for, for unemployment before they begin to taper? And if they're not yep. seeing inflation pressures... Um, I think they'll let unemployment go to 3% and, uh, and before they start to, to think about tapering. And that could be years. I hope not, but it could time. be. Right, and I think, look, it, it's really interesting in this new paradigm of theirs um, is that, uh, you know, 2% is an average. Um, okay, that's great. I mean, if they're going to try to make up for... Um, you know, how much inflation has stayed under 2% for the last 10 years, uh, they can run uh, the inflation rate fairly hot for, you know, a number of years before they get overly concerned, yeah. um, you know, about addressing it as long as it, you know, unemployment continues to fall. You think that that continues equities moving higher throughout the year, Scott? Or is there some well, existential or exogenous risk we're not talking about? Well, uh, there are risks all over, Brian. I mean, I think people know that I'm a pretty conservative guy. But uh, right now, uh, you know, given uh, the Fed purchase program, the idea that we're going to get a lot of stimulus out of Washington, um, you know, I, I think stocks have a green light. And, uh, you know, I probably would think that uh, at least through the end of the first quarter, it's a, it's a pretty safe place to, to be investing money. I mean, on a relative basis. 
All right. There, and, and before we let you go, Scott, you, you always have some of these unusual ideas. I know we talk about Bitcoin because to your earlier point, it gets the attention, the equity markets and bonds. But there's a lot of ways to make money out there with higher rates and maybe a weaker dollar. Could be a good scenario for certain types of credit. On this program, we've talked about things like airline leases, bank loans. Is there one sort of smaller, less talked about part of the market that you and your team at Guggenheim are really finding a little interesting right now? Well, you know, I think that um, the, the securitization market with, um, uh, you know, the, the level of where airlines secured by, by aircraft at a very low loan-to-value um, is, um, you know, trading at uh, fairly distressed levels. I mean, uh, single-A, triple-B-rated aircraft securitization, you know, Brian can trade between you know three and a half and and four and a half percent, and yet you know there have been a number of double B bond deals that have come to market uh, you know like, like two and five eighths. So um, so you know I think that uh, you know given the fact that it's cheaper than junk bonds, uh, and that we're likely to continue to see uh, junk bonds uh, spread to treasuries compress over time, uh, that's probably a good value sector of the fixed income market. All right. I love the, the unusual idea because it's a good segue into our next guest, Scott Miner, talking Bitcoin, the equity markets, Fed Chair Jay Powell, airline leases. And again, uh, Scott, uh, our condolences for, for Tommy Lasorda. 90, had a great life and bled Dodger Blue the entire way. Scott, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Brian. All right. Take care, Scott. All right. Speaking of airlines, airline stocks actually catching a little tailwind today. We meant to say that. Following news that Delta had its cash burn and narrowed its losses in the fourth quarter. This is the FAA has issued a rare special order to step up enforcement against unruly passengers in the wake of last week's Capitol riots. Phil Beau spoke with FAA Administrator Steve Dixon earlier today, and he joins us now with the latest. Phil, what kind of changes are taking place? Well, it's, it's a crackdown. They're going to get hard now, in hardcore in terms of dealing with these people. There's no more warnings. Here's exactly the new policy from the FAA. They are no longer just simply going to be putting up with some of this and, and warning people. Zero tolerance, possible jail time, up to a $35,000 fine. Here's Steve Dixon talking with us this morning about why the FAA is cracking down on unruly passengers. This is about uh, flight safety. And, uh, and any time I see, any time we see uh, a trend like this, we need to take action because uh, traveling on a commercial airline in the United States is, is the safest form of travel in human history. And I want to make sure it stays that way. Airlines are also taking steps. Among those steps, take a look at shares of United Airlines. United, in the last week, just in the last week, has put 60 passengers on its uh, do not fly list or within the airline. They're not going to be able to fly. Meanwhile, Delta has said that it is increasing security for its flights. And it is also no longer checking firearms for passengers going into D.C. Only law enforcement officers are allowed to check firearms. Here is Delta CEO Ed Bastian this morning on Squawk Box. We're all on high alert based on the events over the last couple of weeks up in uh, Washington. We uh, are doing an awful lot in terms of gathering the information, talking to all of the intelligence agencies and both federal and local, uh, as well as FAA and, and TSA as well. Uh, we've uh, increased the, the amount of, of security both in the airports and in the sky, seen and unseen. 
By the way, this new policy from the FAA, it will last through March 30th. Bottom line is this, Brian, the airlines and the FAA and law enforcement in the D.C. area, they are not going to put up with anybody who wants to act out either at the airport or on flights to D.C. All right, so it is temporary, ends March 30th, although I guess, Phil, they could always extend it. And so it's not just sure. that, by the way. We've, had a lot, we've seen a lot of these videos of people getting into literally fistfights because one ding-dong won't put on a mask. Well, that's a lot of this. This is not entirely politically oriented. It's not just people who may have been acting out with uh, some political venting. They have been also complaining about putting on their mask. That rule has been in place for some time. And now the airlines are saying, look, we will continue to ban you from flying on us if you're not going to wear a mask. You have to wear it and you have to comply with what the crew tells you to do when you're on board. Yeah, and it's not that bad. I've flown, I've flown, you've flown, I've flown. I'm flying next week. As yeah. a matter of fact, Phil, you wear them, you put it on, you kind of forget you have it on after a while. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. Appreciate it. You bet. All right, and that wraps it up for The Exchange. Went fast, right? And just a quick reminder in the markets to all you investors out there, tomorrow is a big options expiration day. We have seen stocks have some big moves on these days. Not all of them, but some. Remember those gamma squeezes that we talked about last summer? Some people think that could happen again tomorrow. Not will, but could. Just pay attention. Tomorrow could be a very volatile day in the equity markets. I'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.